I always found myself like working very hard to try be the best at, at those little things but also enjoy what I was doing make, making sure I think this is evident at a very early age I want to be competitive at something but I wanted to enjoy it while I was doing it and I think I I don't think I gained most of my enjoyment from the competitive side of it and from the, the racing or the, the competing it was more from just being present there and enjoying seeing other people enjoy what we're doing and yeah, enjoying it with them that's Patty O'Leary and this is episode 57 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I bring you conversations with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running. I've got another good one for you this week with a guy many of you outside the Bay Area running scene may not have heard of yet. His name is Patty O'Leary. He's an Irish lad living in San Francisco, and he's a North Face-sponsored trail and ultra runner who has risen through the ranks of the sport in just a few short years. He's also got a fast set of wheels, having run a big personal best of 220 and change in the marathon last fall at CIM, a race he ran on somewhat of a whim after the North Face Endurance Challenge Championships got canceled due to the California wildfires. Patty's a friend and sometimes training partner of mine. He's got an incredible story, not to mention a beautiful Irish brogue that I'm excited to share with you here today. Before he got into running about five years ago, he played on the Irish national lacrosse team from 2007 to 2014. He's also a cancer biologist at UCSF, a former co-leader of the November Project in San Francisco, and he has a love of traveling, community, sport, and of course, a good Guinness. On Saturday, April 13th, Paddy is going to return to Ireland to attempt the Wicklow Round, which involves summiting 26 peaks with over 20,000 feet of climbing, over 70 miles, with no GPS, just a compass, a map, and his own questionable senses. This is a long one, folks, but it's a great conversation. I really think you'll take a lot away from it. So settle in and enjoy my exchange with Paddy O'Leary. Drinking here, Patty. This is uh, what was the title? It was the Orange. The I think that was the only title I had. What's the what's the name of the brewery? Treehouse. Treehouse. I think it's Treehouse. Yeah. It's in Spencer, Massachusetts. Yeah. So I had a friend visiting from uh, from Massachusetts this weekend, and he brought us a selection of Treehouse beers. We had four beers, two after a race yesterday, and uh, my buddy took the other one, and you uh, got to share the final one. Left to your own devices. Yeah. What is your preference in beer? What is my preference in beer? Um, I must apologize to Sufferfest for this one, but uh, Guinness, for sure. It just kind of reminds me of home, but also it's just a super light beer. It's uh, it's it's home, so that's kind of the best thing about it, and I just oh. love stouts. I think with a name like Patty O'Leary, you can get away with that. It's a forgivable yeah, offense, yeah, yeah, even yeah. though Especially you given didn't March name 17th. your sponsor as your, your favorite beer. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, that... Uh, Pints of Guinness, you gotta love it. Uh, kind of it reminds me of home a lot as well, which is one thing I really enjoy about it. Here's a question for you. When you have a pint of Guinness here yeah. in the States, is it different than the Guinness they pour back home in Ireland? Because I have heard it go both ways. I hear everyone always says, oh, it's so much better at home. But to be honest, they're not bad here. I think the biggest thing is just the quality of the bar. So some bars won't like clean their taps or maybe that keg is just sitting there for weeks and it might get a bit stale in that. So if there's a high turnover, generally it's pretty good. Uh, uh, 
But back home in Ireland, like Guinness are really like diligent where they'll go through and they'll like they have people come review every bar uh, every couple of months and review like the piping and whatnot to make sure it's up to speed. And up so to the standard. quality control is on quality a different level on a different than it is level, here yeah, in the US. Yeah. But then I think a lot of enjoyment of beer or food or whatever is where you are. And I think that might be one reason people like enjoy it a lot more because they're there, they're in the setting, they're in kind of where it belongs. So it's more about the environment yeah. than it is the actual beer itself. Yeah. Though you don't want to be drinking crappy beer. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, that's a good little preamble. You ready to get yeah. rolling? Yeah, for sure. Patty O'Leary, this has been a long time coming. Welcome mm-hmm. to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And welcome to my home. We're sitting here on my couch in the front room. It's great to be here. It's a lovely home. You've got great views of San Francisco right yeah. from your front bay window here. Yeah, we look to the left. We've got Coit Tower, Trans, uh, the Transamerica Salesforce, which is... A bit of a huge beast over there. It's and then, then the Bay Bridge. Uh, actually, especially if it gets dark later on, you'll see the lights in the Bay Bridge. And it's kind of a spectacular view. We're lucky. We're lucky to get into this place. And you've been in San Francisco since late 2013. Has this been home for you the entire time? Well, the first month I moved over here, I stayed with family friends. A buddy of mine from the Irish Lacrosse team stayed with his family at West Portal for the first month or two. Moved into this house uh, October 2013 after the first month. And yes, yeah, been home since. Okay. Let's get rolling here. I'm very interested in your weekend. And this podcast episode is going to come out two, maybe three weeks after this conversation. But I saw on Strava yesterday, you put in 34 some odd miles. And for those of you who don't live in the Bay Area, we are early March and it has been pissing rain here for the last several weeks. Yesterday was no exception. It was maybe 40, 45 degrees and just dumping all day. And you ran 34 something miles on the trails. And then I noticed this morning you went out for another several hours, didn't cover quite as many miles, but we're bushwhacking all over Mount Tam. So I'd love to know, what have you been up to the last couple of days? Yeah. So uh, this spring I've kind of changed up. Uh, I like challenging myself with different... Uh, I say different styles of running and adventuring. Some training for an event I'm planning to do back in Ireland that involves a lot of orienteering, a lot of bushwhacking, and just a lot of slow miles in miserably poor weather. So, uh, yeah, the last two, this is one of my bigger training weekends for, for that. So it's perfect. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll, I'll tell you about what we're going to do. So I'm heading back to Ireland uh, in the middle of April to tackle this. I'd say it, we call it the Bob, it's like the Bob Graham of Ireland. So if anyone's familiar with the Bob Graham round, but it's called the Wicklow Round. And just, I hate to interrupt, but the Bob Killing did that last year. Yeah. And shattered the record. Shattered the record and did it kind of quietly. Yeah wasn't really known that he had shattered the record until after he had shattered the record. Yeah, and it was a record that stood for like 40 years. Um, so this, the Wicklow round is, is similar. So these rounds involve, you pick a mountain range and you tag every peak in a certain order and you have to do it in less than 24 hours. So that's the goal. Um, the Bob Graham, I think, was something like 60 miles maybe. And Killian set a record of like 11 hours. Our one's substantially slower. Because uh, the terrain is a little uh, little less forgiving, I think. Or maybe the weather is a little less forgiving, even though it's pretty miserable in northern England too. But the Wicklow round basically involves 26 peaks that you have to traverse in a certain order. So it's over about 70 miles, depending how lost you get, and about 20,000 feet of vert. But, so you have the peaks, but you cannot use GPS. You have to use a compass and map. They're very, like the Irish mountain running community are love just navigation and orienteering and like the kind of the pure side of that where you don't rely on technology to go back and do, to find your way around the mountains, pick a peak, go to it. That's fell running. Like that's fell running in home in Ireland in the UK. 
so yeah, this route is like 27 or 26 peaks around the Wicklow Mountains, just south of Dublin. You're 45 minutes away from a city with 1 million people, but you don't realize it. And you're just trip, but you, there's not many trails around there. So when we go trail running, we're going running across like meadows and hillsides and bog sides and traversing through some pretty, can I curse on this? Yeah. Some pretty gnarly shit, like in terms of like you're half bog snorkeling, half scrambling, bouldering up a, a cliffside and half running. Um, so yeah, and going back to tackle that, that record, that. What is uh, the record? The record, so it stood for maybe 10 or 12 years. This guy called Ian Keith had the record, who is, did Barclay last year. He's Ireland's most impressive long-distance ultra-runner for the last decade or two. But then last year, interestingly, when we were back, myself and my friends were back wrecking the course uh, last May. And that same weekend, Joe Stringbean McConaughey from uh, Boston, who is famous for having the Appalachian Trail record for a while and the PCT record, he was a Columbia athlete along with uh, with Ian. So they Ian brought him back to go for this record, and he had this spectacularly beautiful day where he could see. He was quite lucky in the sense that he could see all the peaks because the rain, the rain in those mountains, the weather can turn. He could go from perfect visibility to fifty feet of visibility, and um, so he ended up dropping the record. Ian's originally was like 18 hours to, to, and he dropped it to like 17 hours, five minutes. So he was moving well, which is why, like, I've done 70 mile runs before, like Lavaredo or uh, some of the races, and I'm doing that in like 13 hours, and that feels like slow going. 17 hours is the record for this. So this will be the longest day I've ever spent on my feet. So that should be interesting. Well, and those other races that you just mentioned are challenging in their own right, but they are on a marked trail. trail, And you have aid stations along the way and other people around you. You're going to be out slogging away solo, finding your way around these mountains with a compass and a map. How are your navigation skills? Uh, They're improving slowly but surely. Ever since I got into running, I've been, I've, had a couple of races where I took wrong turns and a couple of small races when I started first. And I built a reputation where people were ripping the piss out of me a lot for uh, ripping the piss means mock, mocking and, and jeering. Uh, ripping the piss out of me a bit for having poor... I might have to attach a glossary to the yeah, end of this yeah, episode. Yeah, this yeah, yeah, people can yeah, understand yeah, what you're saying half the time. A, a paddy American dictionary. Um, yeah, I built a reputation for uh, taking wrong turns, which I think is completely unwarranted i think i'm quite good at directions but you always think you're better than you are um so yeah but my directions have been improving over the last two or three months i've been kind of doing a lot of practicing just going out to the i've been trying to find in the bay area hillsides and parks that mimic the irish uh, mountains as much as i can where it's going to be open hillsides with bog interspersed with forestry and uh but so just to kind of get you practicing finding a point uh, uh the peak Finding the next peak, setting your bearing, following the compass and find your way from A to B. Um, it can be tricky on some of our usual uh, runs up in Marine because there's such great trail networks. You don't want to rely on a trail. So I've been going down to like Henry Coe State Park is down in the peninsula, which is it's the second largest state park in, in California. Um, it's got really good trail systems, but it's got a lot of open space as well. So I was able to practice like just beelining across the, the meadows, finding my way to a different peak, getting lost, finding my way again. Um, so yeah, that's been fun. But then this weekend, it, uh, it kind of went a little further extreme. So yesterday I did a 50, I did, was doing a 50k. Um, an actual race. An actual race. Okay. An actual marked race. But it's funny enough when we refer to my inability to take correct, follow correct directions and make mistakes. In this race yesterday, myself and a few others, uh, took a wrong turn. 
a couple of wrong turns. Um, it was very windy down there and they're very foggy. And a lot of the, this is a, a charity race that actually funds my lab in UCSF. I've been working with a, a friend of mine over the last couple of years. And so we were down there running the 50K for fun. And we ended up like taking a wrong turn, like three or four miles in. And by the time we figured out we were way, we were way off, we we're on a different part of the course. We ended up nearly running the course backwards with a few extra loops. So I ended up on a 30 mile race. I ended up getting like 35 miles. My buddy Fernando, he, he, he turned off a little bit earlier. He ended up running 28 miles. Another buddy was running 28 miles. Another person ran 31 miles. So choose your own adventure. Choose your own adventure. And But yeah, so obviously my directional skills are, are improving drastically. Um, but then today I met up with, uh, with this guy, John Burton, who did Barclay Marathons last year. And we did a training run over in Marin where uh, friends of ours had laid down a load of... Uh, hidden kind of treasures across uh, across Mount Tam and giving us maps and we had to go find them. So we were meant to we were meant to find about we had sunrise to sunset to do this and uh, we were meant to find like sixteen different checkpoints all around. So uh, actual items that you needed to find, to find and bring back somewhere. Not, and not on the trail and these were in the middle of like the Manzanita bush. So we were like I know Mount Tam like the back of my hand I feel ever went today I'd never been before where we were trying to find our way up say up the side of the mountain in between like with a half mile to our left is a trail I've ran hundreds of times half mile to the right is a trail I've ran hundreds of times we're going straight up the riverbed or straight up this cliffside or straight through this bush um, so that was a fun experience it was a slow experience I sounds think. perfect for what you're about to tackle yeah so over like seven hours I think we covered like 18 miles we had to turn we, we didn't end up doing the full thing because I uh, had to come back here for the interview so that, that that's that's so you didn't find all the items. We didn't find all the items. I'm no. sorry. Yeah. Next time. I'll take the blame for that. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. hopefully yeah. I'm definitely blaming you for it. Hopefully, in a, when we go to do this in Ireland, we'll have a I'll have a little uh, better look with the round. One thing, actually, people will be able to follow the, the Irish Mountain Running Association provide this little GPS tag that they put on me for the round, and they'll share a link so people at home can follow along where I am on the course. A lot of these mountains look exactly the same, and there may be a cairn at the top or may not but you have to hit a certain location it's the highest point so I'll be going along like traipsing along finding myself across these peaks if I miss the first or second peak and like go like half a mile or quarter mile to the left of it you guys at home will know I missed it I won't before you do so I could end up doing like 26 peaks and 70 miles and then realize at the end I missed a peak at the very start which technically you wouldn't have done the round but uh but yeah, you got to know where you're going. You got to know what you're getting on, getting involved in. I've had a lot of uh, friends in, from the mountain running community at home have been really good at actually helping me, giving me advice uh, to prep for this. When I was back at Christmas, I got out on some runs and I did about a third of the course with one of my buddies, Gavin, from back there. Uh, one of our friends from the Irish Ultra Running team. He, um, we got out there on like a miserable day when we like 50 feet of visibility. It was close to zero degrees Celsius, so like free, close to freezing, uh, wind, rain, pelting, every uh, like coming from every angle. So a lovely Irish day. A powerful Irish day. But then like 30 minutes later, we went around, we crested over this hill, dropped down into the valley, and then beautiful sunshine came out. And we're like, oh, it's lovely. Take off all your layers. 10 minutes later, it's back pelting at you every direction. So it's very unpredictable, the weather back there. So we will get into your mountain trail ultra running mm -hmm. history somewhere in this conversation but when did the idea to tackle this is it an fkt would you call it that uh, i'm going for well i'm like 
I'm attempting to go for the FKT, but if I, like that's what they call it, the fastest time around it. But um, I've stacked the odds against me a lot by deciding to go back in April when the weather is still pretty horrendous. When's the best time of year to do it? Uh, Summer? May into June. Okay. As you get later in the year, you, you'll have more hours. Because also, we're so far north, there's a big range in the amount of hours of sunlight as well. Right. When I was back there at Christmas, there was a fella attempting a winter round on the winter solstice, the, long, the shortest day of the year. And that was the day I was saying there was no visibility. They stood out tackling. He got in just under 24 hours, was the second person to finish the winter round, and it was just a horrendous day. He did it unsupported, um, so he didn't have any meeting at the roadways to give him food. And he powered through, went through the full night. That night was 16, 17 hours of darkness. Um, when we do it in April, we're going to have, I think, 13 hours of light, 14 hours of light, so I'll have a little bit of darkness to run through. Last year, we had a drought in our, after we'd snow in March, and then we had a drought in Ireland for like six or seven weeks throughout April and May. So actually, by the end of April, it wasn't too bad. This year, currently, a lot of the route is under snow, so it all depends on how the weather is going to shape out in the next couple of weeks, so I'll be following that quite closely. When did you conceive of the idea to tackle this, or when did it first so come the, into your consciousness? So two good friends of mine, uh, Brian Scurrett and Dylan Lads, they have a... A, fil- a filmmaking company, Dooster, and they've worked very close to something I, I think we'll talk a bit about later, the November Project. They did all the films for the November Project, and I've been running around, good friends with these dudes for a couple of years, and we we're always talking about trying to do a film together. And he'd just come back of a, from a trip to Ireland, and I'd always talked about, like, the fact I didn't know running when I was back in Ireland, came over here, found running, that I'd love to go back and kind of explore what was on my doorstep all along. And so um, we had uh, we said we wanted to go back and do an adventure, so we started looking at the different uh, popular FKT attempts to do there. And, uh, yeah, that's where we come up with doing the Wicklow Round. So when we go back there as well, even beyond the attempt itself, the main reason we're going back there is we're going to make a documentary on Irish mountain running and on the culture and community that makes up this great, this, this, this great thing that's going on at home. And um, also we want to show the amazing trail and amazing mountains and amazing scenery we have in Ireland, uh, like the most picturesque place in the world. Um, so yeah, we're spending two weeks back there. We're going to be interviewing a lot of people who are involved in the core of the community back there, especially a lot of people who are in the core in establishing this Wicklow Round. And then, so the documentary is going to be on that. And then in the meantime, in the background, it's going to be me suffering through this uh, this attempt. And then in the second week, we're actually going down to our biggest mountain range, the McGillicuddy Reeks down in the southwest in County Kerry. And we're thinking of trying to, this will be kind of more for, well, it's all for fun, but this will be more like unorganized. We're, we're thinking of maybe trying to establish a first round in that range in there. But um, that's pretty burly. It's a lot of like really dicey ridge lines, and we'll have to see. That's also under snow at the moment. But well, This is all fascinating to me because you didn't get into trail mountain ultra running until four years ago, more or less. It was 2015, and I'd met you right around that time here in San Francisco. And all your life in Ireland, you grew up playing lacrosse, yeah. running for you, was a means of conditioning. It wasn't something that you were pursuing competitively. I can't imagine you had much knowledge of Ireland's running history, much less mountain running history at the time. And it's pretty cool to see your excitement right now to go back to your homeland and immerse yourself in this and to learn about the history and hopefully make yourself a part of it. Yeah. So um, when I was a kid, so my dad actually used to run. 
My dad used to run cross country and he was a... he um he was an official wasn't he yeah he was very involved in like kind of he was a chairperson but he set up our local uh, our local um running club in our in our area but then he was involved in this group called the community games which is this multi sports club which had running it had team sports it had art it had everything but it was just a way of getting kids 8 years old 18 years old into sport so he was heavily involved in that and so I used to, I went and jumped into a couple of cross-country races as a kid, but I was distinctly average. I used to remember I would go out and I'd be first, I'd be the last person going to the first corner whenever I did this race. And I'd keep plugging away and I'd be able to get up to like the mid-pack. But I'd do like maybe two or three races a year. But I only cared about team sports and academics and whatnot as well. Um, I was like Gaelic football and hurling were my team sports and I was distinctly average at them as well. I think as a kid I didn't really find my, as a teenager I didn't really find my footing with sport in general um but then when I got into college I think what really kind of drove my competitiveness in sport was I found my way into lacrosse and at the time there was no lacrosse in Ireland so this was these Americans had moved over to Ireland in 2015 or sorry 2005 and they'd set up Dublin lacrosse club the first uh, lacrosse club in Ireland and they came into our university, set up a little tent and recruited people to join. And we had the first ever game of lacrosse, well, first game of lacrosse in like 60 or 70 years in Ireland back in uh, that spring. But because there was another team in Ireland, we had to travel, uh, we had to travel around Europe to get our games. So um, I'd never been on a flight before 20, 2005 and hopped on about a month into start after starting this new sport. I hopped onto a plane and went to Frankfurt to play against this American team over there. And we that was your first flight? That was my first flight. How old were you? Uh, 17. Okay. Yeah, yeah. First flight, first time out of the country. I got the ferry to Wales a couple of times, but first time really out of the country. But that kind of triggered a love of traveling and the love of actually in community and sport because the lacrosse community at home and very much like it is over here, um, it's just instilled in like togetherness where it's, I think this is very prominent in European lacrosse and in international lacrosse between the different countries that you go, you play a game and then you go out and enjoy a drink with a, with the people in your opposition. So there's a, there's a very good atmosphere between different teams and, but everyone really cares about the growth of the game. And that's something I see very much in Sounds like trail, trail running. running over here. So those parallels are like, I've seen the parallels of my time in lacrosse and why, what really attracted me to lacrosse. I see that very much with trail running as well. So I was involved for the next eight years. I played in the Irish lacrosse team from 2006 to actually till my time over here to 2014. Played in a couple of world, cha- two in, world indoor championships, two world outdoor championships. Captain the Irish team in 2012 to a, we got to the European final, which is wild. It was like thir- 20 teams playing in Europe at the time. Uh, we got to a European final, final against the old enemy, England, who'd won every single European final up to then. But uh, we unfortunately lost that. But it was um, we'd been like eight or ninth ranked coming into it, so it was like we had like, this kind of Cinderella run to the final, which was awesome. How were you thinking about lacrosse at that time? Was it purely a competitive recreational sport for you, and you knew there was going to be an end to it? Or, and forgive my lack of knowledge of of the sport, but was there opportunity to continue? at a professional level or pursue it further than you had in university? Yeah, so I think I joined it, like I only started, I only picked up the stick for the first time at 17. 
at the professional level, you have it like in US and Canada. These kids have been playing since they're three or four years of age. So the level of lacrosse was quite a bit lower back in Europe. I would have been one of the better, the best, one of the best players in Ireland, one of the better players, players in Europe, but there wasn't really a pro league there at the time. I really saw it as a way to, a way to travel, but then also I was very involved in the organization side of things. So I helped 2008, I can establish the first Irish lacrosse league. I really love organizing sport and like just coordination and just like helping see something grow. Like that's something that, and that's also translated to trail running into November project. Wow, well, exactly. Now. And I saw yeah. that theme yeah. starting to emerge right there and yeah. we'll continue getting into yeah. that. So, um, yeah, I was involved in like just trying to grow the game at home. So that was kind of my biggest passion there. But it also gave me a huge opportunity to travel and to see the world. We traveled all over Europe to play games. We traveled to the States a couple of times, to Canada. Like my first game for Ireland was in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 2007. Uh, we're playing the World Indoor Championships. At the time, I think there was indoors a, like a smaller game internationally than the field, the field across that you'll know from the East Coast. Um, our first game was against the host Canada, who arguably maybe that that their team of twenty twenty four was the twenty four best indoor lacrosse players in the world. We're playing in their first game in the local ice hockey stadium with two thousand people watching it. I've been playing this sport a year and a half. And I'm lining up against the best players in the world. It was just a wild experience. We got absolutely crushed. But actually, they went easy on us by the fourth quarter, by the third quarter. But we all had a lot of fun. But we scored a goal. We lost 25-1. But when we scored a goal in the third quarter, a fella from uh, an Irish-American from, I think he's somewhere in the East Coast, Mike Ryan, scored it. And the commentator just went crazy. He was like, goal! For about five minutes, really, <laughs> really like kind of South American soccer style. Goal by Michael Ryan. And there was 2,000 people just going wild. Um, that's one thing I love about th- that sport is that the elite at the elite level they really loved seeing things grow back here as well. So they were they were the Canadian team, the US team, the Iroquois team were seeing were how can we help you grow the game back in Ireland? And that's something I've seen develop in sport over the last ten years, which has been really cool. Like currently, when I played in my first World Championships in outdoor in 2010, there was 30 countries. This last World Championships, I think, had something like 45 countries from, there were several countries from Africa, several from South and Central America, several from Asia. So it's great to see how, like, it's great to go out onto a lacrosse field and, and hear, like, something you typically think is a northeastern sport. is now becoming global. Coming global. So you go out and you see and you hear only, like, at the World Championships, the referees could be speak, able to speak, three, like, could be from three different languages. I've had a Korean referee, a German referee, an American referee. And then it could be an African team versus the Irish team. We played Uganda. Uh, Uganda scored, they scored their first ever goal in the 2014 World Games against us. And the crowd went crazy as well. It was kind of like an inverse of what I'd seen sure. eight years ago. It was a really cool experience. Well, that's a cool thing about sport lacrosse, certainly running because it's the oldest one there is and the basis for all of these these other sports, but sport is a universal language and it can be different universal languages, but it ties people together and it's a common thread that we share and I think that's a pretty special thing. So when I came over here, I, uh, I started playing club ball here 
but um, that kind of started crossing over when I started getting into running. So I actually coached lacrosse. I coached high school, school lacrosse down in the South Bay. I remember For that. my first two years here. And so like every Saturday and Sunday, I was coaching a touring team. Um, so the team, we'd bring the high school kids around to, um, to recruiting tournaments and showcases. But then, and then sometimes we'd be playing a lacrosse game on Saturday. But when I started into running and like I started going to my first uh, San Francisco running company runs in like late 2014, early 2015. Started to conflict a bit. I would do the run at 8 a.m., finish at 10. I remember that. And then get a ride a mile to our field in Sausalito and play a game. And uh, yeah, they started to conflict a little bit and started conflicting my coaching. I coached through in through my first like year and a half of when I was taking running seriously. And that actually, we got to travel. We got to travel to Colorado Springs to coach at the tournament. And I was able to run Pikes Peak for the first time. And uh, we got to travel to the East Coast and I got to run in humidity, which is something I'd never done before. And it was horrendous. Um, but it was, it was, I was able to tie things together. But when I started taking running really seriously, I wasn't able to keep lacrosse up. Let's hit pause right there and rewind quite a ways. You mentioned how you got into lacrosse really when you were in college back in Ireland. Growing up as a kid in elementary school, even into high school, what were your interests? Not just athletically, but in general. What were you interested in as a kid growing up? So I was definitely much more, I think I was much more into, like I was much more academic than sporting as a kid. Um, So my first, the school I went to, my national school, uh, we call it primary national school, uh, same as elementary school. There was 50 kids in our school. I'm from deep countryside Ireland. Um, so Galbally National School, we had 50 kids. My class, there was like seven kids. Um, but I was always like top of the class there. And when I went to, into secondary school, through the different subjects. So I went from a 50-person school to a 500-person school to a 25,000-person university. So it was quite a, quite a change. But I was very much into academics back then, a little bit into sport. But um, my parents, Pat and Margaret, were they were brilliant in that they allowed us to follow whatever they encouraged and gave us opportunities to get into any sports we wanted like like my siblings uh, my eldest brother Seamus he ran a little bit he was being into rowing he was a very good hurler which is an Irish sport that everyone should go home and watch it's one of the greatest sports in the world let me interject what is hurling? hurling is um, lacrosse is one of the oldest sports in the world hurling is like one of the oldest European sports in the world like similar to running it's been played in Ireland for two or three thousand years um it's a wooden stick sport like since it's been modernized it's a wooden stick sport where you have a leather ball and you hit you 15 on a side and you throw the ball up in the air and you hit it with this wooden stick ash stick it's kind of like a wider hockey stick the length of the field and you try to put the ball over the bar or into the goal it's quite physical there's the only sounds violent the only recently uh they made helmets compulsory about 10 years ago (laughs) it should have been uh, quite a long time before that that. sounds very irish but um yeah, it's a, a lot. it's a sport that's really steeped in our culture. Okay, and uh, I'll check it out. Over, I think when we well, like when we got independence from the UK, uh, the old enemy. Reference to that a couple of times. When we got independence from there, it was like ten or twenty years where kind of a lot where a lot of sports. It's like original Irish cultural things like sports and music and language has started to disappear. But then, like the last. 50, 60, 70 years. We were like very much at the start. Sport was like the first thing of like renewing Irishness where hurling and Gaelic football started, uh, started like coming very, very powerful and spread across the country in like the 50s and 60s. And so only, we've only recently caught up with like the Irish language and Irish music and whatnot. But um, you're starting to see that at home where people are really, like even my generation where we learned the Irish language as, as kids. We didn't really appreciate it. But then when we got into our 20s, we started to realize that Irish music and Irish language, that 
we really want to foster it and promote it. Um, so back to your childhood. Yeah, back to the childhood. Your siblings sound pretty athletic. At least your brother yeah. Seamus. Yeah. So Seamus, he was a he was a he was a very good rower. He actually rode uh, he rode an All Ireland champ. So rowing at home is coastal rowing. So we were in a, it's like one oar. You're on these wooden boats. The the seats don't slide. But it was out in like you're in an estuary into the Irish Sea or into the Atlantic. So it was pretty gnarly conditions. Uh, he was a very good rower and very good hurler. Um, my eldest sister Mary so she was like kind of more the adventurer of the group she was into kayaking and climbing um, but she has actually done the most impressive athletic feat of anyone in the family she was over here studying in Notre Dame doing her masters in teaching and then throughout in, in the, in, she was doing a two years masters and in the summer or she was at Notre Dame in South Bend and throughout the year she taught at a school in Fort Worth, Texas but then to raise money for all the schools, for all the kids and all the schools in this program, there was, I think, 12 schools. The teachers all cycled from Santa Monica and LA to New York, and they stopped in South Bend and graduated on the way. So she, she cycled across the US. So um, I need to figure out a way I can <laughs> do something a little bit more impressive. Because uh, I kind of one the, up your sister. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the endurance runner, I'm the endurance athlete. Yeah, I, I don't think this but, uh, Irish round adventure is going to no, cut it, man. No, it could do it being like, oh. It's only a one-day thing. Going across what the country takes months. 70 miles versus 3,000 miles? Yeah, you uh, got a ways to go, buddy. Sorry. I think, I think Mary's, uh, I think that's safe for the time being. My next sister, Anne, she's a PE teacher. She, uh, But she traveled. She lived in Dubai for two years, lived in Australia for a year. And she actually played a lot of teams. She was kind of very involved in, like, team sports as well. She played Gaelic football when she was in Dubai. Used to travel around the like Asia, Southeast Asia and the Middle East playing games. She also played rugby over there. Uh, but she was actually the best runner out of she actually ran competitively in a throughout school and she um ran in college as well at University of Limerick but did a semester during 2001 actually in Slippery Rock Pennsylvania and ran I know country. Slippery Rock Pennsylvania I ran my first national cross country oh, championship there in 2001 she ran in 2001 at Slippery Rock I'll so, have to check those results. Yeah, you that might. was the NCAA Division II championship yeah. that year. What yeah, a small so, world. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she was competing at that at, at that level, but yeah, the, she was there right around 9/11. She was there the next four months. So you may have uh, you may have crossed paths. You may be in the same field as my sister. So, a couple things that stick out to me from that. There's clearly an athletic gene yeah. in the O'Leary family, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there is clearly a we'll call it proclivity for wanderlust yeah yeah in amongst your siblings anyway i don't know much about yeah your parents and you have certainly seemed to inherit both of those things where do you fall in line are you the youngest so i'm the youngest so then be the aim and after that who was an excellent team so he was a good hurler we actually and gaelic footballer a couple of times we actually lined up we were playing with each other on a, in our local teams and he was a good bit better than me and he was a good roar as well and was a good roar too um so i'm the youngest of five the four, the four eldest actually had all lived abroad for a year or two or three prior to 20. I moved abroad at 25. So I had actually, I was probably the closest to home for the longest period of time. Like Mary lived in the States for three years. She lived in Boulder for a while. Uh, Eamon had been living in Scotland and uh, living in Norway for like from 21 through to his 32 now. So the first 25 years of your life or so, you really only knew Ireland. You traveled a little bit for lacrosse and had some international experience, oh, yeah. but you were very much homegrown to that yeah, point in your life. Yeah, I was homegrown to that point. I, was, I think lacrosse had allowed me, had given me kind of a very broad, a very actually American, um, kind of Americanized 
not view of the world, but experience where I come to the states quite a bit. Sure, I done a sem- I done actually a two month internship in Houston in 2011, working in the cancer center there, and played lacrosse for a local team there. And but beyond that, I, but I got to travel a huge amount for for sport and for science. So I was really lucky in that regard in Europe and uh, North America. Let's dig into the science side of things a little bit. Currently, you're a postdoc here at UCSF in San Francisco. Yeah, so as of actually six months ago, I, so I closed out my postdoc and I'm still working for the same lab, but I'm a research specialist. Research specialist in cancer biology for your lab at UCSF. Yeah. You just mentioned doing an internship in Houston related to your field of study. Mm-hmm. When did you decide that you wanted to study or become a cancer researcher? Yeah, so I when I went into college, I was kind of... I was trying to get into veterinary medicine originally. I grew up on a dairy farm, so uh, I always saw myself kind of moving back, living in the countryside, working there. I That was the most competitive, one of the most competitive subjects to get into in college, and I just missed out on the entries to that, so I ended up finding myself in general science. And then started really enjoying, during my first year of college, really started enjoying like pharmacology, molecular biology, and understanding kind of the signaling systems of the human cell and understanding the human cell. And I had done some summer internships and my final four-year undergraduate project with a melanoma research lab in a, um, Liam Gallagher's lab in Dublin. And yeah, when I'd finished uh, undergrad, I was kind of looking for the next step. And yeah, I decided that like in Ireland, we kind of we can go straight, often can go straight into grad school programs, straight into a PhD. So I started my PhD at 21. Um, in, right after undergrad. Right after undergrad. Because I was very much deep, I, like back home, I was very much involved in the lacrosse community there. So I really had a lot of still wanted to do there. But then I was working for like a spectacularly good research group that were kind of at the forefront of Irish cancer research. I'd done... The, first, the kind of the first project I'd worked on was where we were screening like cohorts of um, of Irish melanoma patients where we were looking for a certain mutation, a certain type of mu- mutation that was targetable, the BRAF, a BRAF mutation, which many people may have heard about, that is targetable by a certain drug. So I was screening like two or three hundred patient samples for, for this mutation just to see if there was an association with how well they responded to the drug or how well the patient did. And... Um, it kind of helped me realize how important the work was doing because when I started doing my first project, it was patient-related. So um, we started seeing, because sometimes in science you can end up being quite a distance away from the patient and actually seeing what your work does. Our lab was very translational where we were working closely with medics. You weren't just looking at yeah. spreadsheets and numbers and yeah. charts and results all yeah. the time. Yeah, or we were, but people were telling us how important sure. they were. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of got me into that. Um, we had a really like our, we were working at the Conway Institute of Molecular Research in in Dublin. It was I was at the the kind of forefront of Irish research and Irish. We actually punch above our weight in terms of our size in sport, but also in a, in research and molecular medical research. So it was a it was kind of fun. My my boss was. I'm very collaborative in nature. My boss is very collaborative in nature. So we worked with labs all over the US and Europe. So it was kind of, I really associated with that as well because I really enjoyed working with a team, working with a broad team and learning from other people. So it kind of created an opportunity for me to travel abroad as well. Hey, 
I want to take a quick break to let you know that this episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston, not far from where I grew up. They're a group of dedicated runners focused on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Tracksmith's products are designed for a specific running function and solve problems unique to the experience of training and racing, whether that's building the perfect pair of half tights for speed workouts or split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets to race a marathon. And unlike other brands in the industry, Tracksmith's model is direct-to-consumer, which enables them to scour the earth for the most technical materials to meet a specific performance intent without having to compromise to make wholesale margins. Tracksmith's products reflect their New England roots. These are classic, understated, and high-quality essentials for runners who are working toward their next PR. I'll be joining them for the Boston Marathon, hosting a morning shakeout run from their headquarters at 285 Newbury Street. So join us on Saturday, April 13th at 9.30 a.m. for a run along the Charles River and then soak up the energy at the Track House, the undeniable hub of Boston's amateur running community. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario. That's my name. Right now, they're running a special offer for new customers. Spend 150 bucks, and you will earn their signature Navy Van Cortland singlet for free. Again, you can learn more at tracksmith.com slash Mario. Follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning and shop at tracksmith.com. My thanks to Tracksmith for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Do you have a personal connection to cancer that makes your work... I don't want to say more meaningful because it is very meaningful in its very nature. But for example, my wife also did her PhD in cancer biology and she lost her mom to cancer while she was actually getting her PhD. So for her, she has a very personal connection to it and for that reason is very committed to staying that course and trying to do what she can to help find a cure or at least further the cause. Do you have anything like that in your own life? Um, so at home, like in across the world, like one in three of us are going to be linked to cancer, are going to experience cancer in our lives in some way or another. Um, at home, fortunately, we didn't have, um, when I was getting into cancer research, we didn't have anyone in our family was directly um, was directly impacted by the disease themselves. But a lot of like next door neighbor, a lot of family. We had a huge amount of um, breast cancer cases in, in our area. But just I think one one really fortunate thing is that we're really improving our screening ability across uh, in Ireland. Our health service had done a really good job of that, so we were detecting more cases. Um, but I remember when I was actually when I was going into college, we had like four or five close friends of mine had uh, lost their parents to breast cancer. So that was kind of the closest thing, fortunately for me, but that was kind of the closest we had to it. But um, it makes it more real. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, it's not just statistics that we can all see. Yeah, when you see... Human lives that are directly affected by yeah. a terrible disease. It's like someone that you go in and you see them at the, you'd see them every week after mass or at the shop or waiting at the bus stop and then a year later you come back and your neighbor's mom, you don't don't see them anymore. So it was a... It kind of, yeah, that was one of the reasons I really wanted to kind of follow into and do work and do science that really impacted uh, impacted people's lives. You came here to the U.S. in 2013, I believe, toward the end of it, to 
pursue your postdoc at UCSF here in San Francisco. Take me through that process toward the end of your PhD when you were trying to decide what to so do this next. Is a fun, this is actually a, a fun story. So I think in our lives, serendipity happens a huge amount. And I really appreciate some people call it serendipity, some people call it luck, but I think recognizing opportunities and following through on them. So I was walking, it was coming up, it was maybe four or five months before I was due to write up my PhD, so it was in the spring of 2013. And uh, I was walking up the corridor and I see, look at the bulletin board like beside my boss's, uh, beside my boss's office and I see like the Golden Gate Bridge. There was a landscape, a four-poster of the Golden Gate Bridge, and then a, a note on it from this Professor Martin McMahon, um, postdoc positions available working in melanoma research, so working on the BRAF mutation, that mutation that I had done all my initial research on uh, during undergrad, um, looking for postdocs uh, to see if anyone wanted to apply to come over to the US. And I would knock on my boss's door and like, do you know anything about this Martin McMahon fella, Scottish fella who's like over in the US, is he any good to work with? Then my boss was was here. Martin emailed me yesterday. I was or I was emailing with him yesterday. I was trying to recruit him to come over to come to a conference we were hosting a few months later. And I was here, wow, well, I'm thinking of applying for a postdoc with him. He said, oh, I'll just respond to the email. And he replies back to, uh, to Martin saying, yeah, I have a PhD student interested in talking to you. Martin was going to a conference in London the following month and uh, so flew over to meet him. And uh, yeah, we just got on really well. He like, really appreciated the kind of work I'd been doing back in Dublin. And um, I was really interested in the project I moved over here to work for first was to try to understand the mechanisms, mechanisms of resistance to a couple of therapies that have become really useful in melanoma treatment. But resistance presenting to the drug happens a lot, so we're trying to understand why. Um, so yeah, he offered me the job and, uh, like I still had a couple of months more working in, uh, working in Dublin, but then moved across, wrote up my PhD four days later, hopped on a flight, moved to San Francisco. Do you even look at any other options? Uh, I looked at local options. I looked at local, local options in Ireland. Um, but Were you I was, keen on getting away at that time? Yeah. Yeah. I've been in Dublin for eight years and, uh, yeah, I just felt the draw, and I felt the draw to the states, and that was actually very, as opposed to the US being, because the US is the top research in the world, um, as opposed to being that, my draw was actually sport, because of uh, my lacrosse background, and having made great friends who were like either doing research or doing lacrosse with me back in Ireland from the US, my draw was to get over and experience that. I thought I was going to move over for two years, I like my initial plan was I was moving over for two years, and I was going to apply for this grant that uh, allows you to do two years away in the US an EU grant that brings you to the US for two years, returned for a year, and then got over here. And like within six months, I was like, I love this place. I, this is my home for the time being. This is my home for a long time. So you thought you were going to come over here, do science, play some lacrosse, yeah. go back home, yeah. and carry on Settle with your in life. Dublin, yeah. And six years later, here I am, an unprofessional professional runner, and... Uh, yeah, doing completely different sports and just loving it. And after getting the opportunities to travel all over the world through sport, which has been pretty wild, getting to still work in like one of the the best medical research centers in the world, which has been a pretty wild experience. Shortly after you arrived here in the U.S., you mentioned how you picked up your lacrosse stick, joined some local teams and would still play. But you also started 
attending this free fitness workout in San Francisco called the November Project. And well, fast forward a little bit, you eventually became November Project co-leader and were leading the workouts for quite some time until you stepped back a short while ago. But I would love to learn more about your introduction to that group. So my introduction to that group was I was sitting right here where I'm sitting now. A month after moving to San Francisco, I had been sent out on like like 50 or 60 Craigslist applications. And I'd actually got invited to come look at this house right here. There was an English dude, Mark, who was uh, in a room upstairs, was moving out. And yeah, they picked 12 people to interview for this house. And then I sent in an app after like out of like 200 applicants. Very, if many people will know, San Francisco is very competitive in terms of. This is just to rent a room. This is just to rent a room in a five-bedroom house, and just in the border of Chinatown in San Francisco. Um, so like two hundred applicants, they picked twelve, and then I sent my email in, and they saw Irish guy, and they're like, well. Irish guy, to English guy, to Irish guy is definitely an upgrade. So they brought me, <laughs> so they brought me in as the thirteenth person. So I came and I sat here and we were talking away and I was telling about my love for sport and love for community. And uh, Mark, the dude who was moving out, was like, oh, "That's weird." So like, my friend is involved. She's going to this kind of. It's weird. It's very culty. This running, this running group in the city, the November Project. You should check it out. I think you'd enjoy it. And I went to, I went back to the place I was staying that night and looked at a couple of YouTube videos and found this like weird, these just these weird funny videos that are kind of jokey a bit about these people just meeting up early in the mornings and just going doing burpees and running. And uh, so yeah, I actually I went like two weeks later. I went to my first workout and it was a hill session. It was like I went to my first one. There was a hill session, and I'd never really done hill repeats before because I'd never really trained for running. And I was just flying up and down the hill. And they were like, who is this dude in lacrosse shorts and an Ireland lacrosse t-shirt flying up and down the hill? And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So right from the first day, that was kind of my first intro to like, oh, wait, I could be really good at this running thing. This is 2014. This was late 2013, November late 2013. 2013. Yeah. Okay. So. And then, so I started going to all the workouts. This was like... So one thing we say about, if anyone doesn't know, November Project is a free fitness movement that's in cities all across the world. But it started back in Boston in 2011 when these two dudes, Brogan Graham and Boyan Mandrick, they were kind of fed up of working out in gyms and joining classes. They're, so they were former Northeastern rowers. And they're like, well, we used to do all these workouts with the team. Why don't we go back and do them again? So they built a Google Doc called it the November Project, and over the month of November, they started planning all the workouts they would do, and they would do them together. And this was during, I think there was a big freeze in like late 2011. Boston, Boston winter. That yeah. Boston winter was meant to be horrendous. Uh, so it was during that winter they started doing it. They got to the end of the month, they're like, that was really fun, let's keep doing it, and let's maybe invite other people along. So they put out a post on Twitter, and they said, oh, November Project workout group, it's free, all are welcome, come join at Harvard Stadium every Wednesday morning. And one person showed up the following week and they thought they were kings of the world. They're like, we're creating a movement. Over the next coming weeks, more people started coming. More people started coming. So it grew from like 10, 20, 30 people. A cult was being formed. Yeah. But then uh, the <laughs> an interesting like segue. So the, Ed, or the, not the Edmonton Oilers, the Boston Bruins, the NHL went on strike. 
so the Boston, the, a lot of the NHL teams weren't playing. Andrew Ferenc, Andrew Ferenc from Edmonton was maybe captain of the Bruins at the time. He heard about this November Project group, so he started coming to work out with, with November Project in Harvard Stadium. And he started, he put out a post on Twitter for people to come join. And people came out in numbers because everyone loves Andrew Ferenc. He's one of the greatest dudes alive. And so people started coming. It grew, grew to like 100 people. And then two years later, people started moving to other cities and be like, oh, I miss that community. I miss what we had there. So Brogan's brother, he was living in Brogan's hometown in Madison. He uh, set up one in Madison at the time. And Laura McCluskey, who was one of my closest friends, moved over here and she started one in San Francisco about six months before I joined. And uh, it grew into like 20 or 30 people when I moved there. And uh, yeah, I kind of just found my community, found my people. You go for the community and you get a workout in. That was the kind of the way I was describing and that was also your introduction to running and eventually yeah. trail running. So about two or three weeks after I joined November Project, the Berkeley Half Marathon was on. And uh, there was a lot of people from November Project doing that race. So I said, oh, I'll hop in a car and I'll go over and support it. That was a Sunday morning. And I'm a big rugby fan. I like watching all the Ireland rugby games. Ireland had played New Zealand that morning. It was like 5 a.m. Pacific Coast time. So I got up to watch that game. We'd never beaten New Zealand in the previous 100 years we played them. We're beating them in this game right up until the 80th minute. And they got a last-minute try and score to tie the game. I was distraught. They were picking me up to go chair race, and I was, like, devastated. I was like, oh, what is going on? So I'm just, just frustrated. <laughs> so I'm here in my, like, like cotton boxers, the cross shorts, a cotton T-shirt, and um, I'm hopping the car, and I go over to cheer these guys. And then just before the race, uh, someone said, oh, we have an extra bib. Do you want to run? And I'm like, yeah, fuck it. I want to let the energy, I want to get this energy, this event pented up energy out and like curse on New Zealand a little bit. Went and ran that race. And that was my first, that was really my first kind of competitive race beyond a charity 5K or 10K. What'd you run? Uh, ran a 127. But more critically, I passed Laura, who's the, who's a very talented runner. She ran at Northeastern. Uh, I beat her on the last little hill. I saw her in the distance. And it was weird. That year, so to add an extra like, 0.1 of a mile, they had this set of cones that was like with a mile to go on the course that went over and back, over and back, very like a security line at an, air, at an airport. So I could see Laura at the far side of the cones. So I'm going in and I'm running along these cones, chasing her. And then finally, the last hill, I kick. And she's here, what is this fella doing here? It's a lacrosse player. And I out sprinted to the finish line and I beat her in my first race. And I was very pumped with that. And I've never let her live over it. <laughs> what was the feeling that you were experiencing when you crossed that finish line? Not just from meeting Laura, yeah. your friend, uh, but just in general, being part of this event in a competitive environment and having conquered this half marathon, which prior to that morning wasn't even on your radar. Yeah. Like, I, I think I still, when I crossed it, I was still pretty clueless about, like, the distance I just ran. The longest I'd ran before was, like, six miles. So were you I, running hard, racing people, or were you just trying to get across the finish started line? Slow, I was trying to get across the finish line, but then there was a lot of out and backs in that course, and there was a lot of fast guys and girls in November Project, and I'd see them ahead of me. And I'm, I consider myself quite a funny character, and I like, like banter a lot. And it was one of my one of the dudes, Jorge Marinho. He um, he was like, I think he was on like one twenty pace. So he was always a few minutes ahead of me. But he would always shout at me when I was on the way back. He said, "Patty, I'm beating you. You got to come chase me." And 
I really wanted to chase him. So I was, I was trying to, I was picking up paces every time uh, we did one of these out and backs. I was getting a little bit closer to Jorge, so I was kind of chasing him down. And then I happened to see Laura, and I was just kind of really want. I was really enjoying that I'd never really raced before, like being raced something with that many people as well, passing people, like since I was a kid. And uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed chasing people down. I really loved the kind of the thrill of the chase. And I was so clueless about the pain in my legs and about uh, about kind of what what I had just done in terms <laughs> of a distance. That makes a lot of sense to me. We'll, we'll get into some of that here in a bit. But let me let me interject. Would you consider yourself a competitive person? You obviously played lacrosse and were involved in sport, and you're just describing what you're experiencing during this race. But when it comes down to it, do you have a natural competitive streak in you? I think so. I think so. Like I think it was evident from when I was in school. Like when I was in school and academics, I was always like kind of fighting for like the, the top of the class. And even like as kids, my mom used to do, we used to do like art projects and whatnot with our local like community center and go to agricultural shows and present art and Lego structures and things. And I was always wanting to win and come back with a little, little medal or win 10 euros on, or 10 pounds on a, on a Lego trophy. I always found myself like working very hard to try be the best at, at those little things. But also enjoy what I was doing, making sure. I think this is evident at a very early age. I want to be competitive at something, but I wanted to enjoy it while I was doing it. And I think I, I don't think I gained most of my enjoyment from the competitive side of it and from the the racing or the the competing. It was more from just being present there and enjoying seeing other people enjoy what we're doing and yeah, enjoying it with them. What is it about running and competing? and being part of a group of like-minded folks that is enjoyable and even somewhat addictive to you. Yeah. So I think I've felt like over the last three years have I started to learn more about ultra running. Kind of a lot of my people around me in the November project are also starting to get into it as well. I really enjoy learning and experience, getting these new experiences myself and realizing what I can do to push my body to a to new level, but also seeing my friends around me kind of being inspired by that and going out to tackle these same goals. Like I was kind of the first of the November Project people to get out and do, and they're on the West Coast, I need to get out and do an ultra. And the following year, so I did my first ultra in 2015, the following year we had 10 or 15 or 20 of our, our group signed up for the first 50k and it was really great I really enjoyed like feeding back my own experiences that and allowing other allowing other people to kind of like gain knowledge from my own experiences and push themselves and help improve themselves through that that's uh yeah I kind of really seen the people around me push like because they push me as well I kind of everything is really community and kind of community and kind of friendship driven and just direct interactions with people and seeing all of us kind of move forward together. Let's go back to that half marathon in Berkeley, specifically what happened after that race. Were you hooked in a way? Were you looking for other races that you wanted to try and do? I'd love to know where your head was at in regard to running at that time. I was still a lacrosse player. I used to so I used to go to these November Project workouts and I would refuse to run to the workout two miles away. My buddy Pete Cruz lived half a block up the street here. He was here, Paddy, let's run to the workout and do it and run back. And I'm like, Peter, that's four miles of running. 
I'm a lacrosse player. I don't want to lose my fast twitch muscles. I had the world championships. I knew I had the world lacrosse championships in Denver the following summer. And I was like, I'm training for that. I'm not a, I'm not a runner. I'm a lacrosse player. And when I was still into 2015, I was still thinking I was a lacrosse player who runs on the side. So like after that Berkeley half marathon, I didn't really want to do competitive races or care. Like I really have that hunger and fire to do a competitive race for months after that. Till uh, I think my first, like Berkeley was fine for like enjoying the head to head racing, but my first experience of like hammering and wanting to beat people and just really enjoying the thrill of the chase and the thrill of racing was in 2014, September 2014 at the North Face Endurance Challenge in Wisconsin. So every year we used to bring all the November Project co-leaders together in what we call their co-leader summit. And you were a co-leader at the I time. Co- I started co-leading like three months before that. And so they have the marathon relay at a, at the at each of the endurance challenges, which is the 10K route where you have four legs. So you get a four people do all four legs or two people could do two each or one person could do all four. That year we decided that all of the co-leader pairings were going to race against each other. So we had San Francisco, myself and um, former MPSF co-leader Dan Clayton. We were like, yeah, we're going to throw down. Dan ran 5Ks at Northeastern. He was fast. He was like long legs. He wore the shortest shorts I'd ever seen. I'm still wearing my lacrosse shorts when I was racing. But we knew we were going to be pretty decently fast because I was kind of accidentally fast and he was like being honed fast. He was legitimately he fast. He was legitimately fast. Um, so we want, we wanted to throw down and like say, because we also felt San Francisco was the fastest of the tribes and the fittest of the cities. Um, so we wanted to leave a stamp on that race. So That competitive of, streak you just talked about. streak, yeah. It's it, there. It's there. So I went out in this race and this is going to feed back to my directional the start of everyone thinking I'm shit at directions. It was like a lollipop out on a road onto a trail. You do a loop and then back in the road. About like three miles into the race, I follow the wrong ribbon color. I'm leading the race and I weave LA, appearing from LA and appearing from Chicago, right hot on my tail. And uh, yeah, I take the wrong course and I end up running like the half marathon or onto the half marathon route. So I go and then after like two or three miles, I'm like, I feel like I should have got back to the road. I'm like five or six miles into a 10K. And I know I definitely have another two or three miles to go. And then I start passing people again and people who would be at the back of the pack who are like, maybe walk running, walk running. I'm like, oh God. Something's up. Something's up. And so by the time then I start realizing, yeah, obviously I took a wrong turn. I'm back in like maybe a hundred place out of like a hundred pe- hundred teams. Um, but then I was chasing people back and I was still a little down on myself during that. Got back to Dan in like 60th, but then realized that this is really fun. We're chasing people down and they all know we're chasing them down because of this out and back. They all knew I'd made this mistake. And yeah, every leg we just got a little further up. Dan came, handed it back to me. He like ran like a trail, a 37 minute 10K on a pretty steep trail course, which is pretty gnarly. Uh, got it back to us in 10th. But then like during that, we had this weird like 45 minute gap where he's out running where I'm waiting back there with the people I'm racing against who are all my friends. I'm trash talking, I'm bantering, I'm having so much fun with them saying, oh, we're coming for you. And uh, we end up, we never, we, I, Dan passed it back to me in like uh, 10th and I got us up to 5th, but we couldn't get hired in 5th. But it was almost like that Cinderella story where we, after disastrous wrong turn, we fought our way back to the podium. Almost pulled it off. Yeah. But uh, that two-hour period of chasing 
really, I think it combined with my competitive streak to make me really enjoy like... It lit some kind of fire under some you. some kind of fire under me that, that this could be really fun. So then we did the endurance challenge here in California like two months later and we we're like, redemption. We're going we're gonna to crush everyone in this. And we ended up winning the, the marathon really at that. But that was the really wet 2014, the TNF Endurance Challenge where... That was my second 50K. That was your second 50K. So I saw everyone doing the TNF 50 miler at that. It was a mess. That was a mess. I saw Tim Tollefson come in just covered in muck. And it looked like he fell into a porta potty. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think that was his, maybe that was his first 50 miler, I think. It was his first 50 yeah. miler. So then, so we're like, we hop up in the podium for a marathon relay. And we're like, yeah, we're kings of the world. But then we see these dudes fin- hammering, finishing this 50 miler. I'm like, huh, that kind of looks fun. So that was my first, that was like my first experience of, I'd seen the ultras at Wisconsin, but it wasn't really, it was my first experience of competitive ultras. Well, uh, that's a championship in California. So people are there to throw down yeah. and those are the best of the best right there. So it was in the next week or two, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to do a marathon. And I started looking at races. And at the same time, myself and um, a member of November Project uh, San Francisco, who you're familiar with, Amy Leadham, who you coach, who have been close friends with Amy for five or six years now, uh, we both decided we're going to sign up for our first ultra. So we both hop into the lottery for the Tahrim Trail. This is the 55K. 55K. I remember this. And it was like they released the, uh, they released the lottery results like at New Year's Eve. So we actually had a house party here at the house and Amy and her husband Braden were over here. And me and Amy are checking our emails like 11.45 and then we find out we both got in. So we're like, I guess we're doing an ultra in the summer. So I started like, had my, I was building my own training plan, i.e. just go out and run as hard as I can three or four times a week. That was my training plan and signed up for a couple of races. So I signed up for the Pacifica 30k uh, and the Golden Gate Trail, I think 30k up in the headlands in like January and February and did both of these 30ks and both like really wet miserable days perfect conditions for an irishman ended up winning both races and setting course records both of them i think the previous record holder was a friend of ours called alex varner and i was like wow that was kind of impact like that's kind of legit i think i might be okay at this so i started going to sfrc i was actually emailed, i'd been emailing brett for a couple of months saying i was going to come out and join this running group he had on saturdays and it was soon after that i think i met you for the first time I'm going to interject here. I remember that run. I remember we were running down Old Springs toward the parking lot in Tennessee Valley. You and I are at the front of the group, near the front of the group, chatting along. You don't even look spent. You're in these knee-length lacrosse shorts, these low-profile, they were either Innovates or Merrills. It was an Innovate, pair of Innovates. Pair of Innovates, ratty T-shirt, ridiculous accent, and I was just getting to learn a little bit more about you, asking you some of the same questions I've asked you here about who the hell are you, where are you from, how long have you been running? And you mentioned those two wins and course records in the 30K. And I remember looking them up and I was like, he's the real deal. Like this guy can actually run even though he looks like he just fell out of a gym locker room yeah. somewhere. And it was obvious to me, I'd put my coaching hat on, like, this dude's got some talent, and if he starts taking this sport seriously, watch out. Yeah. So it was like maybe a week or two after that, a friend of mine mentioned him earlier, Pete, 
was a member of West Valley Track Club. This is Pete Cruz, who you'd mentioned yeah. a little while ago. Yeah, so we were uh, running to, I'd started running to the November Project workouts now because I was training and such. Don't need those fast switch muscle yeah, fibers yeah, yeah, as much. Yeah, I'd retired, I'd hung up my lacrosse boots. Um, so I was running to the workout and he said, Patty, there's this dude who's in West Valley, Matthew Lay, who's a really good ultra runner. Why do you reach out to him, get him to coach you? I'm like, Pete, I'm not a serious runner. I'm still a lacrosse player. I'm not getting a coach. This was on a Friday in February. And I was like, no, Pete, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. But good idea, but no. Later that day, I see a message pop up in my other messages in my inbox from Matt Ulay. One of He messaged me, he said, I hear you like, had some good results in these 30Ks and such. Do you have a clue what you're doing? Do you want a coach or anyone to give you advice? Ends up one of his work colleagues had seen me at the Pacific. Spoiler, Pat, Patty had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. Other than just going to the front of whatever group run or race that he was running and hammering the yeah. shit out of it. Uh, so, As an Irish lad would do. Yeah. So a colleague of Matt's had told him about, about me and he looked me up and just serendipity strikes again. The same day I told Pete Cruz I wasn't going to reach out to this coach, that coach reached out to me just because someone else had introduced him. Uh, had told him about this this speedy Irish dude. Uh, so I started working with Matt, signed up for the Oakland Marathon, did my first marathon two months later, had the towering 55k coming down the line. And uh, yeah, I was a runner. I was following a training plan. It was kind of a wild experience. I believe you're in 240-something in that Oakland yeah. Marathon. But you won the 55k at Tahoe, spoiler for those of you out there in podcast yeah, land. Yeah, so I did 245 in Oakland on that hill you won. And then did the Tahoe Rim 55k. Had a great rate, had a great battle actually with a with an, with uh, another dude, Don Montgomery, I think was his name, a local from uh, from the east side of Tahoe. The whole race, we were never more than a minute apart for like six hours of racing. It was a uh, with like thirty seconds, or with like come through the last aid station. I think I gapped him by like thirty seconds and held that off for 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 the end. So that was like me loving the thrill of chasing and chase uh, and being chased. Like a whole race you're never more than a minute apart from a dude. Uh was pretty wild and it was kind of my first experience into ultras. Did that give you the confidence that you could be pretty good at this if you trained a little more diligently and gained a bit more experience? For sure. And like to gain experience, like I signed up for like the U.S. Championships a few weeks later. You're in uh, the Headlands, 50K. Headlands, 50K. I believe you were ninth. I was So that's the funny thing. So I think I was ninth that day. So they, they were calling up the top 10. And they called up 11th, 10th, and 8th. And I'm like, and they called them 10th, 9th, 8th. And I'm like, I sneaked sheepishly up to the back uh, to, to, to Fitzpatrick, who's the director. I'm like, sorry, sir. Um, you didn't call me up, um, but I think I came nine. Did you get something wrong? He said, well, are you American? I'm like, no. He was like, well, that's for the U.S. championships. You're not eligible. I'm like, oh, I was so disappointed. <laughs> I've given him a lot of shit about that since. Um, but then, yeah, I signed up for the TNF 50 miler. Uh, I later. think you started running cross country with us that fall. Was it 2015 when we started doing it? Or was it, no, I think it was 2016. Maybe it was 2016. Yeah. It was the year San Francisco hosted the Club National yeah, Championship. Yeah, I'd done a full year of I like believe it was 2016. You may be right. Yeah. So I did the TNF 50 that first year, 13th. and You were just like, outside the top 10. Yeah, yeah, 13th that day. And then signed up for my first 100K the following spring and did Canyons 100K. And Which my, you won, and my spoiler first, alert. Yeah. I was there. And my first Boston, which was uh, which was in the training for that. Which was a which was a wild experience, but then I realized I was pushing the distance too much too quick, 
kind of like mad uh, like it gives me very like structured advice but allows me to, to kind of do what I want to do as well because I like following passions and zany ideas but then we both together realized that oh, I don't need to push up to 100 miles which I think a lot of people fall into that trap where they get into it's easy to do yeah so uh, yeah we stopped and kind of eased off and just try I wanted to hone in on this 50k 50 miler a little bit longer distance and kind of get that right and at that time in your head you were for all intents and purposes not a lacrosse player yeah. anymore but did you think of yourself as a competitive runner at still coming into later like the end of 2015 into 2016, even with that 13th at TNF, I didn't think I was competitive at the national level or international level. Not yet. Even like when I went and did canyons, um, not really. I think the first time I realized that, okay, I can compete against the, the elites, the international elites, was I signed up for the rut at the end of 2016. And... Horrendously Irish day. Canyons was a beautifully miserable Irish day, pissing rain that. the whole time. I loved it. The rope was exactly the same. They had to reroute the course 20 minutes before the race because it was snow up in the summits, but down it was just miserably cold, wet rain. And I was a top American based uh, runner home that day. There was like, I think first and second were Spanish and Italian. And then, well, sorry, I, I discounted Alaska there. Third and fourth were these hardy Alaskan fellas. And then I was the first kind of um, from the continent, the continental US. I was the the first um, the first back. And then I realized I beat some big names there. That was, uh, yeah, I'm a runner. At this time, you were becoming increasingly increasingly more competitive athlete on the trails and in ultra races. You're still holding down the fort in the lab as a postdoc at UCSF. You're now a co-leader of NPSF mm-hmm. at the time. So you're leading, is it one, two workouts a week? Three workouts a week. Three workouts a week. 6.30 a.m. hour workouts. How are you thinking about your life at that point? Was it just exciting to have all these different things going on? Did you feel like it was too much? Were you trying to figure out where you wanted to devote your energy for, to? Yeah. I'd love to learn where your head was at at that period in time. I enjoy leading a very balanced life where I like balancing your work with your passions, uh, with your friends and with your community. I definitely think at that time, and I don't think I recognize it, I was definitely kind of spreading myself a little too, too thin. But I would think I was reasonably good at like balancing like the structured say the structured training in around November projects so I'd like run lead a workout and do a a long city run to get my long run in where I could get a commute run where I'd hit a November project on the way I'd get a 15 mile run with 3,000 feet of climbing in San Francisco so I think I was very lucky by my environment where I was able to run to work and get a huge mountain like what I would call a very hilly run that involved a lot of street but here in San Francisco we have a lot of trail in the middle of the city so I was able to get what was like one third of the run was trails on the run to work so the environment helped me a lot to balance that and actually fit a lot of it in but I definitely think at the time I wasn't able to put as much effort into say running and to get better running training because of the commitments with November Project and and work as well Yeah, I guess what I'm wondering is did you feel stretched thin? For sure for sure. Um, yeah, and I think I let that, uh, to be honest, I continued like that for like another year, year and a half. It was only, I guess, this past summer when I kind of stepped back from leading November Project after four years that, because I started, like, I wanted, 
I want to be the best I can be with uh, with ultra running. Um, and I recognized what I was, a lot of things I was missing on, like sleeping well, getting like having the uh, the freedom to sleep in the morning to when your body needs it. When I had the commitment of the November project, like three mornings a week, having to get up, you had to be there because there's a whole community depending on you. That weighed a little bit on that, but also I'm wanting to combine in strength training. Um, want to combine in better, like just condition, like improving, working in conditioning, and also maybe increasing my mileage as well. Was a hard decision for you to step away from November Project? No, it was time for me. You feel, I think, we see that a lot with like a lot of, a lot of. I think I started to realize that, um, I didn't want to fall into the trap of thinking it wasn't going to survive without you. Because I think a lot of people tend to do that. Um, myself and the co-leader I led with the longest, Laura. She had, she was getting ready to move to Boston, and uh, I was I like so she was feeling for like the last year she was meant to step down, and I was kind of feeling the same thing. So we kind of planned together. We knew there was a lot of people in the tribe who could step up into our position to do even a better job than us, because. I think over the previous year, like you, you kind of get into your cycle of where, because one thing with November Project, we try to encourage a lot of variety in our workouts, but also variety in organizing extracurricular events beyond the, um, beyond the workout. And I think I was starting to notice that I couldn't afford that same amount of enthusiasm and vibrancy into that. And I knew there was people in the tribe that could. So uh, I let my good buddy, Tony DiPascali, uh, took over from me back in the summer and now workouts, the workouts are as vibrant as ever and as different as ever and like a lot of great events that's going on on the side. How often are you attending now? <laughs> a little bit more infrequently. Uh, the two or three months after um, after I stepped down, it was rare because I was like in the height of like training. Um, but recently I go, I go once a week. So we have three workouts. There's one which used to be right by my house here in Fort Mason, which is mainly a bodyweight workout. We decided to move it. They decided when I stepped down, they moved it to Loris Park across the city. Um, so I don't, like I'm after doing, say today I did a seven-hour hike and then did a six-hour run yesterday. And on a Monday morning, I just wanted to get that little bit of sleep. Wednesdays, I'm heading up Tam with the with the Tam Bros, the SFRC fellas now, most times. But I tried to go to all the November Project Fridays because uh, that's the thing that actually made me fall in love with November Project. And one of the things that made me fall in love with the city. On Fridays, we do rotating hills around different parts of San Francisco and the Bay. Clearly, we have no shortage of those. So I explored the city and got to know the city like the back of my hand a year or two into moving here. I felt I knew the city better than people who lived here all their lives. And that was due to that workout. So I just love going and bringing people to different corners of the city and seeing. Because every street corner, I think you have a different point of view in the city. Something that's really highlighted by, I joined Ricky in a lot of his runs on his Every Single Streets project. Um, I really appreciated what he did with San Francisco is that see a lot of corners that people don't, see a lot of parts of the city that people don't really appreciate. Because there's a lot of, there's the, the stereotypical places that people go to when they live in cities. It's like broadening horizons and recognizing recognizing different viewpoints of the city, that the, like going to the roads less traveled, I, I'm a big advocate for. I think that's just important to do in life, is step out of your comfort zone, step away from what is familiar to you, yeah. and talk to people, explore, look around that corner yeah. and see what may be hiding for you. And that's 
one of the beautiful things about running, you can do that wherever it is that you are, yeah. especially in a city. Yeah. Let's go back to 2016. Mm-hmm. You win Canyons. Later that year, I believe you were top 10 at North Face, ninth, ninth if I'm not yeah. mistaken. It's definitely a turning point for your competitive running career, which continued into 2017. You went over to CCC. You were 14th, I believe. Yeah. At the end of that year, which was the last North Face Endurance Challenge Championship because 2018 edition got canceled due to the fires here, you were fifth, fifth. I believe, mm-hmm. and you beat some guys yeah. who outside observers may have been surprised to see you finish ahead of. Yep. Talk to me about that year and its significance for you in the context of your competitive running career. Did it feel like a breakthrough for you? Was it a validation for you, given the things that you changed that we just talked about? I'd love to hear where your head was at during that time. Because coming into into like late 2016 was when I kind of set up, I joined my first sponsored team. was when I joined uh, the North Face. We were worked very closely with the North Face at Growing November Project. And they kind of recognized me from a lot of my antics at the um, and success at the initial TNF Endurance Challenges. But mostly antics. And mostly antics, which you got to appreciate. And they appreciate it. And uh, so they brought me on board to the team and that allowed me to travel a lot. But when I started traveling to the European races, to be honest, I was quite disappointed. I got competitive. I wanted to be finishing top five, top ten in these big international races. 2017, I went to Transvolcania, wasn't prepared for these five or six thousand foot climbs and finished in 26th. And I was frankly quite disappointed in that. Um, Later that summer of 2017, um, I did CCC. And it was my first time in a year and a half tackling the 100k distance, but it was definitely the most mountain race I had done. And it was the most competitive race I competed in. Started out really reserved in that because I was going to take it easy for the first 50k hammer for the second. Followed that perfectly, but I think I'd left it a little bit too late. I was passing, I climbed from like 30th to 14th, but I left it too late. Then the end of 2017, when I went to do like 14th, I wanted the top 10 in that race. Our good buddy, Hori Maravilla, came 10th. And he was only 10 minutes ahead of me. And I've been trying to beat Hori. I've never beat Hori in an ultra race. And I've been trying to do that for years. But then when we went to TNF 50, I approached that race with a little more lack of caution, where I wanted to go out closer to the front and actually, yeah, try push it earlier. So we got into a big pack of us, uh, myself, Max King, um, Toffel Castagna, a couple of others that were kind of chasing the lead pack of Tim Frerichs and Zach and Hayden. Uh, but we were moving, and we were moving early, earlier. Er, er, we were moving early in the race. Previous renditions of Tina 50, I was waiting. I wasn't trying to close to like, because I struggled coming out of Stinson Beach the previous two years. Like uh, I thought, it's dangerous going fast early. But I went for it this year. And I think over the previous two years, I'd really dialed down my nutrition, but also I had a lot more miles in my legs. I was used to suffering more. I think what really helped me a lot for that breakout TNF 50, which I think arguably is still probably my breakout race. I'd just done two seasons of cross country and I'd done a very competitive season of cross country leading up to that race. But Dylan Bowman um, had also done, he, he, he'd also done it that year, but his previous year, like he had a breakout, he had a really good TNF 50 and he was, 
Yeah, we're in the cross country circuit as well. Circuit. Mm-hmm. So in the lead up to that, we were doing like with our S4C team, we did four or five races in the lead up to that, and that was very. I think the cross country races were very validating for me because I was racing against the top track and field and road dudes in the Bay Area, and I was podium and I was chasing them. And I'm an ultra guy. I'm tagging my bib down in my shorts, and that, that that's the thing that would uh, that separate the two. Um. But I was competing against them and I was beating them and I was turning heads on the cross-country scene. And that was very validating. I was like, yeah, I'm fast. I'm fast with the fast dudes. Well, and I think that's one of your greatest strengths as an athlete is you just don't give a shit. Yeah. I mean, you'll step into a race, cross-country, 5K, 4 miles, 8K, whatever it is, against these guys who'd run in college, have run low 60-minute half marathons, have run 13-something for 5K. And not that you don't respect them, but you don't let that knock you down the totem pole before the race even starts. You stick your nose in it and see how you can hang. And that's exactly what you did at North Face later that year is, okay, I've got these guys like Toffel and Max King and Hayden Hawks and Zach Miller, you know, and Tim Furricks who won, who have, no offense to you, more impressive resumes are known for running aggressive races and you threw yourself in it Mm -hmm. and just didn't give a shit. And then... Fast forward to 2018, not to skip over too many things, the end of last year, because North Face got canceled, which you were supposed to compete in again and had aspirations to finish even higher than top five, you ended up running CIM without any plans to run a fall marathon and just stuck your nose in it and went and ran 220, which was a massive PR for you. Do you realize that you have that in your repertoire and that it puts you at a distinct advantage, not to discount yeah. the work that you've, yeah. you've put in, yeah. but just that attitude of, I don't really fear anyone here and I'm okay if I blow up, but I'm going to give myself a shot to see if I can do something special. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that kind of this past year that I've really started to realize because I've started jumping a lot of road, shorter road races. I think it was this cross country season where I think it was this race that uh, that I did in Martinez, so the fastest cross-country race that we have. I ran it with you. We were yeah. the only two SFRC guys yeah. to run that day. Yeah. That's the most impressive race you've ever run. Yeah. So is this basically it's a four-mile flat, two flat, uh, two-mile two loops. Uh, it's hosted by the Hoka Aggies, who are maybe the best... Um, Bay Area team. Bay Area team. By far. Number uh, of Olympic trials qualifiers. A lot of qualifiers. professional runners, Olympic trials qualifiers. That's their home race. And effectively, it's probably their trial for national championships. It is. So they show up in depth. And usually they sweep every race. And they show up in depth to this one. So this is the one they should sweep the top 10 or 12 runners. And two miles into that race, there's myself and two of the Aggies are hammered along. And like the previous couple of races... I dropped back from them and I'd only surged with half a mile to go and I missed out. I got third place or fourth place where I just wasn't able to close it in time. In this race, this is the race I should not do well. And that happened to me the previous week on Tamalpa, our home race, was on single track. I wasn't able, I left it too late and I wasn't able to close it in on the, on the, the lead guys. This time, as he said, I like taking chances. I just said, fuck it. And at the end of the first lap, I surged on a flat course where we're running 450s where I like if I think myself as an ultra runner I shouldn't be surging in that surged and broke the dude broke the dudes and they weren't able to go with me and I was just able to keep going I was able to get like a 10 or 20 second gap and hold that off 
and that was really validated in terms of like the fitness I had to do like kind of long tempos at a high pace and managed to to win to finish on top of that race on their home race so they had second through tenth I think but didn't have first on the race and that was really enjoyable there was all, it an eye-opening performance for you yeah but I think a lot of it was in a sense but then Actually, I think it's talking for to people who are more experienced in in the game. Like the Aggies were coming up to me and they're like, "Dude, that was a hell of a performance." You were helping me out, like tell tell me that as well. And it was only kind of as it settled in with me afterwards that I realized the type of performance it was. What I really started appreciating myself was actually the tactical awareness I had in that race to go. I think cross country, especially, I think has really helped me be a better racer. And I've started to see that in ultra races. I think over the past year or two, I've started to see how to surge better and how to hammer better and how to suffer better. Um, yeah, we didn't even talk about uh, So then a few weeks after that race, I was doing the TNF, meant to be doing the TNF 50. And I was in the best running shape of my life. Um, you feel I, pretty good about your chances. I felt pretty good about my chances, and I had aspirations to try win that race. Even though, like Jim Walmsley was going to be there, Zach was going to be there. It was going to be a couple of Europeans. It was going to be a really, really stout field. Um, Dylan was going to be there, um, but yeah, I was ready for that. So I started at Taperford, and we had went to our North Face Athlete Summit out in a Puerto Rico maybe two weeks before that, and the. So I kind of was tapering throughout that. I was bouldering and it actually bruised my foot bouldering at that, which was quite quite unprofessional that I was bouldering a, like in a dodgy outdoor location uh, two weeks before this race. But maybe that's me and my taking chances. But I also enjoy like doing the other sports to drive to give me to drive me. Um, so I was actually coming into that week before the race with a little bit of a heel issue and I was kind of worried about it came back to San Francisco being in the midst of all this smoke when did my first treadmill run probably in like ever since I was maybe when I signed up to a gym back in undergraduate where I'm going to go run a mile on a treadmill um, as we got throughout that week and we started to realize that uh, the race was going to be cancelled and I started to talk to Matt and I started to talk to Tim Tollefson who who runs with SRA Elite who organized CIM. We started to realize that, right, let's use this fitness and let's sign up for a race. So effectively, because of the slight injury and because of the smoke and because it was two weeks later, I feel I had been tapering for like a month leading into CIM. Hopped on a treadmill, did a three by three mile marathon pace workout, 5.15 pace. It scared the fucking shit out of me. Uh, one of the most intimidating workouts I've ever done in my life was a, was a three by three mile on a treadmill. I've never been on a treadmill that fast. Uh, that was effectively the only marathon workout I did in the lead up to that race. That was like two weeks beforehand. So I like ran a couple of 20, 30 mile weeks, the three weeks leading up to it. But... I wanted to approach that race with a little bit of reckless abandon because uh, like, I felt I'd started because from the cross-country results and because when I'd ran the previous year, I'd ran a 2.30 in Boston, I felt I underperformed that day. I was a lot fitter a year later as well. I thought, I think I could roll with, because some of the people who I know have got 2.19, I felt I could be faster over the marathon distance, so I said I was going to go out at a 2.19 pace. Um, but I've been talking to Tim the daily in the optimist here. Yeah, like take it, go a little bit slower the first half, and then hammer the second half. You'll have the long fitness going into it. So I think I remember passing you like a mile into it, 
And uh, sounds about right. So I started out like maybe five forty or something, and you might have been at five thirty. For the record, I stayed even the entire way. It wasn't like I died, but you did go out a lot more conservatively I went very than I did. And I passed you about a mile into it, and you're like, "Patty, the two nineteen group are up there. You better cop on and get up there." I remember telling you that. <laughs> so then I started speeding up, and I got in with a group of uh, a group of people where we're clicking off five twenties, five twenty fives. And like when I race, I do a lot of math in my head. Maybe it's the scientist where I'm like predicting pace. I even do this in trail races that go throughout the night where I'm predicting uh, results or predicting like pace they need to get hit certain times. So it's continuously doing the pace adjustment as if I get a little bit faster, a little bit faster. We got through the half in like one ten ten. Uh, myself and this dude from New York and we both look at each other and we're like, we've been rolling together pretty well the last six miles. Are we going for this? We both, uh, so we both agree. Fuck it, let's do it. So we dropped down to like 515s, 514s, 513s to try to get back onto 219 pace. And we're holding that through to like mile 20. And then I start feeling my legs dying a little bit. And I drop back and you'd say, I can't say I blew up because I dropped back to 535s, which is still faster than my, much faster than my marathon PR. But I keep moving well. I'm still passing people. I think we climbed from like the start of the race, like first mile 150 through to like 70 or so. Which goes to show how competitive a race that is. That's wild. Um, that other dude, he kept going. He ended up doing like a 90-minute negative split, getting in under 219. I was doing like 530s the last six miles and ended up getting in just at like, I think, 220, 40. But saw some carnage out there from people living out too fast. There's a lot of it on the course yeah. that day. Yeah. Um, I think what I needed in that month leading up to it or in that no sorry the two or three months leading up to it to get that 219 I think the only difference was I just needed a couple of marathon workouts of like harden, marathon. harden your legs a little bit harden to the legs task because like my weekends were going running for 20 doing a cross country race doing 10 miles afterwards on the trails doing 25 miles in hills the next day you had the fitness yeah I just needed that just didn't something have to the get specific me beyond, muscular endurance yeah, to handle to get beyond the demands of the marathon yeah but I crossed that and then the wheels started rolling in my head about getting faster at the marathon. I think it was within a day you texted me asking my opinion on whether or not I thought you should try and run a faster one. Yeah. And immediately you were like, yes, you the a much faster time is in your reach. You've got to do it. Um so yeah, then there was a couple of uh had a couple of weeks of kind of decision making because I'd already made some really Exciting plans for 2019, the Wicklow round. We'd been gearing up for that for about a year. Wanted to do my first 100 miler. And then in the midst of all that, I'm like, oh, wow. Well, to get on the Irish team, there's going to be a window of like 18 months from early 2019 through to 2020. Olympic team. For the Irish Olympic team for the marathon. Um, the top three dudes in that who run throughout that time um, will likely get sent to uh, to Tokyo. So I had actually started emailing the Irish Olympic Committee to talk to them about it and kind of explaining my own background. And uh, they're like, yeah, we think... Were you? <laughs> yeah. I, I, the, uh, yeah, I actually did. And they, they were like, they were they were impressed the t- at the times. Um, but then actually it's funny, uh, they went up on the statistics on the statistics in the Irish website of the top times. I was the 11th fastest time in Ireland this year. But on the statistics section, they put, my time in a new section because it's a slightly downhill course, so it was asterisked. Qualify it. Damn it. Um, but started talking to them a little bit, but I kind of decided that putting the next year and a half into training for a fast road marathon wasn't really for... Because I think 
I think if I put the next 18 months into it, I think I'd get down to the 215, 214 or, or below range. I think I have the, the leg speed and the, the ability to do that with the right training. But I grew to love running by running in the mountains. And I'd set a lot of huge goals for myself already, huge, exciting goals where I can be the best in Ireland the best in like one of the better best in the world at uh, certain trail running uh, like parts of trail running and I set all these goals that I wanted to do and I want still want to do them but I do want to give it a shot so the currently way it's working for me now I'm going to do the Wicklow round next month clearly I've been spending the last two months practicing my I, compass say, I don't know if your seven hour hike this morning is necessarily conducive to a 215 marathon yeah so I'm doing that and then I'm going to do get it out of your system I'm going to do UTMB get that 100 miler out of my system I'm picking UTMB as my first 100 miler one of the most challenging 100 milers in the world you've heard it here first folks yeah uh, so registered, I had to go back to Hong. I had to go to Hong Kong in January to do a hundred k to get my last qualifying points for that. Didn't get attacked by the macaque monkeys over there, which are all over the trail. Who'd steal your lunch money and gels? So that was a big win. I think they heckled my guy Tim Tollison yeah. the year prior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're intimidating. I was, I was walking along, the, I was running along the trail and I make eye contact with one of them that was like maybe three feet tall, and it just glared its teeth at me. And the dude beside me had poles. I'm like, all right, you get over there. And uh, I'll, I'll say this, I do, he was here. And this is why I bring the poles. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to do UTMB. And then, um, so last year was my first time racing for Ireland, racing the World Ultra Trail Championships. In this autumn, I'm, uh, so I'm going to step back from UCSF for a while, or from research for a while, and actually try do the running thing. I think I'll always, throughout my life, I think I'll always regret not making the most of this opportunity to... Because one thing I've loved that running has afforded me the opportunity to do is to travel the world and see new places that, uh, that I've ever been and meet this great community of people. Um, so I want to make the most that I've found that I've had to, to turn down and cancel opportunities to travel to lots of different places, to race and to do lots of amazing races and compete in lots of amazing circuits. The fact I turned that down because I'm trying to balance too much. So I'm going to do it for a year. I'm going to uh, step back and try to do running full time. So right after UTMB, I'll come back of my last month of finishing up work here in UCSF. We have a lot of exciting projects to finish up. But then I'm going to go to South America and I'm planning to do so hopefully if I qualify to run for Ireland in the World Long Distance Trail Championships, which is marathon distance, in mid-November. So then that leaves me with five months to the end of the marathon qualification deadline. But in typical Paddy O'Leary fashion, I'm going to try to do it then. And like, not quietly well enough prepared, but in enough of window where I think I can do it. And I'll make a hell of a story if I did. Eh? And if I don't get it, if I don't get like the the quali- qualify for it, it's going to be a hell of a fun experience. So I'm looking at traveling throughout the spring. I'm looking at finding myself. Yeah, there's a couple of options. I've been talking to a couple of people at finding myself in some high elevation place to uh, to do two or three months of training camps leading up to the London Marathon. So you're stepping away from your career, at least temporarily, yeah. so that you can pursue this. Do you worry at all that doing so will take some of the fun out of it for you? Do you feel like it adds an additional layer of pressure that doesn't currently exist because it's still, I mean, it's still going to be a recreational hobby for you. You're not going to be necessarily paying the bills with running, but you are 
in a way, as you just said, going all in yeah. on this one specific pursuit. Yeah, I do. I do. And I worry that stepping back away from, the, like, like stepping away from my work and that I need to be like mentally stimulated as well as physically stimulated and emotionally stimulated. Um, I worry at times about that. So in my traveling, I've actually, as I travel a bit, I've been trying to talk to people in the places I'm tend to go to see if I could do a small bit of like teaching programs and things like that. Um, but I'm not, I think with my own psyche, I think I'm able to take myself not too seriously. So I think when I go do this, um, I worry less about the excessive weight and pressure and intensity of the training. Obviously, I'd worry a little bit about the financial part of it. But in terms of travel, like trail running, we have such a great community. These places that I'm planning to go to, I have friends living there who are going to help us out as much as they can. And I've, my sponsors are going to help me out with some travel as well and things like that. So uh, I'm not too worried. I'm more excited about the adventure ahead. And I think I have have the skill set or like one of my kind of one of my better parts of me is that when I find myself in a new place, I'm able to find community quickly and easily and just integrate and enjoy people's presence and I hope people enjoy my own presence. So actually, I'm actually really excited about it. It's a new challenge as well. Like I've lived in Dublin for eight years working in scientific research, lived here for six years working in scientific research. Moonlighting is a free fitness cult leader and professional trail runner on the side. I'm excited to step back to see what else I can do because I think from a lot of the uh, kind of my side gigs, I've kind of really learned a lot in terms of leadership. I've really learned a lot, uh, like say through lacrosse, I learned a huge amount in organizing people and organizing, um, I guess, organizing organizations. So it's kind of, I want to try, see if I can apply some of my skill sets in a broader sense. Um, also, like one big worry people always ask me is, is you're stepping away from academia, you're stepping out of science, will someone hire you back in a year or two? Which is often a big worry about people who work in academia where they're, they have to devote their life to it. I'm a big advocate for balance. If, if, an, if an, an employer doesn't want to hire me because I stood away for a year to go follow a passion, to go try qualify for the Olympics, that's not the type of person I would like to work for. Um, I've been very fortunate with the the employers I've had, the leader, the bosses I've had over the past couple of years. They've always really fostered my sporting and our and voluntary passions on the side because I think they recognize that if you're a happier person, you're going to be a better worker and you're going to be enjoy your work a lot more and be a lot better and more productive. Um, I'm a huge advocate for balance. And I think that started back with my parents. My dad was a farmer. My mom was a teacher. And uh, but they really enjoyed like the the sporting and the, the the activity side of life as well, and that they really fostered that in us as kids growing up to do to keep a balanced life. Last question as we wrap this up: What drives Patty O'Leary on a daily basis? What drives Patty O'Leary on a daily basis? What's the underlying theme? A good breakfast. <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to think on that for a second. Uh, what drives Paddy learning on a daily basis? Community. 
the people around me, the people I find myself enjoying my work, enjoying my activities, my sports, um, pers- personal interaction with friends and with strangers and just people enjoying each other's presence and enjoying seeing new places together, enjoying running together, enjoying activities together. I just really enjoy like people interacting well. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Always fun to sit down, have a chat with you, especially over a beer. Yeah. First time here in your living room. Usually yeah. we're out on the trails. So thank you so much yeah. for taking the time. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. It was, uh, yeah, it was really fun, really fun to chat and kind of reminisce about kind of a lot of, at times I often get lost into with kind of how I found my way in, into this odd place living in San Francisco where running is my big passion where the place I've got to see so it's fun to kind of rehash it and uh, dig into it a little bit I think it's important for all of us to retrace our steps every once in a while yeah. so I'm glad we're able to do that today Yeah, I've been lucky with a lot of uh, a lot of really good people around me that have got me to this place so thank you to them Alright, we did it another episode in the books thank you so much for listening in really hope you enjoyed it I'd also love your feedback. You can send it to me on Twitter. I'm at Mario Fraioli. That's my name. Or you can go to your podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. That helps new listeners to discover the show. Only takes a minute, and it is the easiest way to show your support. A few thank yous before we wrap this one up. First, thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston. They're a group of dedicated runners focused on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. I'll be joining them during Boston Marathon weekend for a morning shakeout. Come run with us on Saturday, April 13th at 9.30 a.m. for some Charles River Miles followed by Conversation and Linden and True Coffee. That'll take place at the Track House. That's 285 Newbury Street right around the corner from the Boston Marathon finish line. You can learn more at tracksmith.com slash Mario. Follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning and shop at tracksmith.com. Also, big thank you to my audio ninja, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com for making this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. He also recorded all the music, which is pretty damn cool. Let's see, what else? If you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. You'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you will likely enjoy. Okay, that's it. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.